Welcome to all of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God. Uh, we are anticipating uh, Christmas Eve when we will look specifically at Luke chapter 2 and the birth of Christ uh, by looking at what comes before that chapter in Luke's gospel, uh, the various angelic announcements that come to Zechariah and Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're starting that build up to Christmas Eve today. I invite you to turn to the gospel of Luke, not John. We're pausing uh, this week and uh, next week. Uh, Turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, and we will consider together verses 5 through 38. 5 through 38. Let's hear God's word together. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Angel's announcement. Now Zechariah's response. Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. 
and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess this morning that there is indeed nothing impossible with you. You do as you please in heaven and on earth, and nothing can thwart your good purposes for the world and for us. And in this we rejoice, Lord. Heavenly Father, we confess that so often we fail to respond as though that were true. We see our limitations and act accordingly. Father, forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for not walking with a robust confidence that you are the living God and can do as you please. Help us to grow in that, Father. Help us to have increasing confidence in you. We pray that you would use your word this morning to deepen our faith in you. Amen. Uh, The opening of Luke's gospel is filled with a sense of anticipation, expectation. Uh, Angelic announcements abound. Good news is being uh, communicated to all the characters, to Zechariah, an elderly priest, Uh, to the Virgin Mary, a young woman, Uh, the sense is that God is about to do something very big indeed. God is on the move, and good news is being communicated to the characters. Uh, John the Baptist will come on the scene as a forerunner to the Messiah, to God's long-awaited king, and indeed the Son of God will himself come to his people. That's the mood. But even as God is announcing all of these great things that are about to be fulfilled, we see that the human response Uh, is somewhat diverse. Uh, On one end of the spectrum, you have Zechariah's response to the angelic message, which is a kind of subdued skepticism, as we'll see in a moment. That's one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, we have Mary, uh, who responds to the angelic message with faith and confidence. And we're going to look at those human responses this morning. Specifically, we will look at Zechariah's doubt, uh, the angel's message, and Mary's faith. Zechariah's doubt, one pole of the spectrum, the angel's message, and then Mary's faith at the other end of the spectrum. So the story begins, perhaps somewhat unpromisingly, with an old priest. Unpromisingly, perhaps by our standards. Uh, You have the character of Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He and his wife are aged, and they've not, like so many people before and after, they've experienced childlessness. Uh, His wife is barren. Uh, we are told, though, this, that nevertheless, verse 6, both were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Uh, for them to be righteous means that they have a relationship with God. He is their God, they are his people, and in love and dedication to him, they walk in obedience to his commands. But again, they're afflicted by childlessness because of Elizabeth's barrenness. Now, if you know the Bible at all, You know that from a human perspective, this is a dead-end situation, but from the divine perspective, this situation is full of opportunity. We think of Sarah, we think of Hannah. We know what God does in situations like this. This is a situation full of promise. Uh, What will God do in response to the quiet heartaches of this barren woman and this old priest? Well, uh, we're told that one day Zechariah is serving in the temple. In Zechariah's day, there were 24 divisions of priests, uh, and each division would have a responsibility to serve at the temple uh, two weeks out of the year, 
and for all of the major festivals and celebrations at the temple. And so it was uh, the division of Zechariah that was serving in the temple on this occasion. And he was chosen randomly by lots to be the priest who goes into the, the sanctuary and offers the incense on the altar of God. For a priest, this was like a once-in-a-lifetime moment. If, you've, if you had done it in the past, you couldn't be selected for it. Uh, so apparently he hadn't done it before, and this was like the crowning moment of his priesthood. He's going to go, and he's going to offer incense on the altar of God. He's going to bring a gallon of the stuff with him and uh, put it on the altar, and that was a symbol of the people's prayers ascending before God as a pleasing aroma to him. So the old priest comes in with the incense, and he gets, he's presumably doing what he needs to do to get ready to put the incense on the altar. And then all of a sudden, to the right of the altar, there is a heavenly figure. I imagine he walked into the temple, temple sanctuary with a sense of expectation. This is the presence of God. There must have been a gravity to the whole thing. But surely he did not expect to find an angel. But there he was. The angel Gabriel, which means God is great, standing to the right of the altar. And as is characteristically the case in the Bible, when the earthly and the heavenly intersect, the earthly becomes frightened. Uh, Zechariah becomes troubled. He becomes fearful and fretful when he's in the presence of this angel. And the angel Gabriel reassures him, uh, your prayer has been heard. I wonder if he stopped praying that prayer. I suspect it's been years, given his response, since he's prayed that prayer for a child. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a pretty probable inference. And if that's the case, that means God remembers prayers we've forgotten. I think that's one thing we could infer from the passage. Prayers that we've offered up that seem to have gone unanswered, God hasn't forgotten about. God has heard your prayer, and he is going to give you and Elizabeth a son. And that son, John the Baptist, is going to bring joy and gladness to you, but not just to you, but to all of Israel. The whole nation will rejoice because through John the Baptist, God is going to call his people to repentance. They're going to turn back to him in preparation for the coming of the king. God incarnate, Jesus Christ. Now, given the fact that in verse 6 we're told he's he's righteous before God, he's this elderly priest and committed to the Lord, how might we have expected Zechariah to respond? Amen, yes. Thank you, Lord. Praise God. Uh, Celebration, delight, thanksgiving, gratitude. But verse 18 suggests that his response is very anticlimactic. You're going to have a son, and he's going to bring the nation of Israel to repentance before the Lord. Response, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The promise of God doesn't stimulate faith and thanksgiving. There is a skepticism. Zechariah asks for confirmation. His painful circumstances and the years of apparently unanswered prayer weigh more heavily on him than even the word of God. He's looking at what's in front of him. He's old, his wife is old, and he wonders, how is that even possible? I need some sort of confirmation to prop up my faith. Now, it may be somewhat comforting to see a godly man like this struggling to believe God's word. We should never say like it's, it's legitimate to disbelieve God's word. Disbelieving God's word is a serious sin, and it dishonors him. But we see even some of God's uh, greatest saints in Scripture at times struggling to believe the word of God. Uh, and so if you're in a, a season like that, uh, you're not necessarily alone. 
take God out at his word, by all means, believe in him. But even uh, those who really love the Lord can have seasons of discouragement, seasons where they struggle to believe. Well, that's where Zechariah is. How will I know? The angel says, I am Gabriel. I come from God's presence. Right? You want a sign? I'm Gabriel. I came from the very presence of God. But if you want a sign, here's a sign. I take this to be the sign. Uh, because you didn't believe the words, you're not going to speak until God's word is fulfilled. Uh, you, you aren't going to speak. And so, in a way, God's correcting Zechariah for his unbelief. But at the same time, every time he has to write something down because he can't speak, it's a fresh reminder that God's going to keep the promise. Like his inability to speak is a way of actually reassuring him that God is really going to do this. So the angel says, it will happen in due course, but until it happens, you're not going to speak. So he comes out of the temple, and he has to gesticulate and use his hands to communicate because he is no longer able to speak. And people assume that he has seen a vision, and in due course, Elizabeth conceives. So what do we make of Zechariah's response to the word of the Lord? Uh, In many ways, he's typical of the human response to the word of God. Uh, We are confronted with a dilemma. Our circumstances seem to say one thing, and the word of God seems to say another. His circumstances say he's old and his wife is old. He's been barren for years. But God's word says you're going to have a child. Which will you believe? Which is weightier? Unbelief says my limitations are God's limitations. Because I don't know a way out of this dead end, there must not be one. But faith says, yeah, I'm limited and I have no idea what the way out of the situation is, but what is impossible with me is possible with God. He is great and glorious and can do as he pleases. Faith responds with a sense of expectation. So the opposite of Zechariah's unbelief is a robust confidence that God is greater than my limitations and he can do for me what I cannot do for myself. That's what faith looks like in action. Specifically, faith expects great things from God. And attempts great things for God. When you believe that God does the impossible, that he is not limited by your limited resources and gifting, then then when you do something for the Lord, you're going to do it with a sense of expectation. Let me give an example. Uh, We understand that scripture calls parents to form their children spiritually, to read scripture with their children, to pray with their children, to engage them in spiritual conversation. God has called parents to form disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, Now it's possible as a parent to go through the motions, to read scripture and pray, but to do it in unbelief. You look at how little you know, you look at how inadequate your words are, you feel that your teaching has very little to offer your children, you see their character defects, you see all of those limitations and you go, "Ah, I'll do it because the Bible says to do it, but there's no expectation that this will bear any fruit. It's an example of doing something in unbelief. To do it in faith, on the other hand, means to say, yeah, it's not that you ignore your limitations. They're there, and they're conspicuous to you and everybody else, okay? It may be the case that you're not a good teacher, that you need to know more and grow. It may be the case that your your children have all kinds of character defects. But you know what? God is bigger than that. And so as you faithfully seek to pray with them and share scripture with them, acknowledging your limitations, but you also trust in God who does the impossible, you do it with a sense of expectation. God's in this, and there will be fruit because of God's faithfulness to his word, and that's true across the board, not just in parenting, but even prayer. Have you ever prayed just going through the motions? You say a prayer, but you don't really expect anything. You just do it. You're supposed to do it. It's a habit. 
To pray with expectation means that there's a God on the throne of the universe, and he hears the prayers of his people, even the forgotten ones, and he can act. That's what it means to live by faith. There's a sense that God's in the stuff. He's working as we're walking with him. We should expect fruit, maybe not right away, but in due course. To walk by faith also means that we attempt great things for God. We take risks. There's a coworker whose life is falling apart, whose marriage is falling apart, and needs a word of encouragement. Unbelief looks at that situation and goes, I might embarrass myself if I try to say something smart or wise here. Better to keep quiet. Unbelief just looks at your limitations and operates within the parameters, the narrow parameters of your uh, limitations. But faith looks at that situation and goes, yeah, I, you know, I, I struggle to say wise things. Uh, but God promises in his word that those who ask for wisdom will receive it, James 1. So I'm going to ask God that he'll provide a word of wisdom. I'm going to open my mouth, trusting God to do what he does. Right? It's not that you don't see the weakness, it's that you see the power of God to provide. When you see that, you take risks. That's what it means to walk by faith. So we have this elderly priest who struggles to believe the word of God. And then we have the angel's announcement to a young virgin, the Virgin Mary. Uh, The angel Gabriel, six months after Elizabeth uh, conceives, the angel Gabriel goes to the city of Nazareth. the, The wording here is interesting. Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. It's almost as if God is looking down and saying, go right there, to that spot, in, uh, to, to Nazareth. So he comes to Nazareth, a city of, you know, three to 500 people, town, village, really. Uh, not mentioned, uh, I don't believe, not even mentioned in the Old Testament, a very humble city, a very uh, insignificant city in many ways. God says, that's where I want you to go. And I want you to go to that virgin who was betrothed to um, Joseph, who was of the house of David. Virgin woman committed to be married to Joseph. There's a message for her. So the, the angel Gabriel shows up and he says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she's startled also, but this time we're told because of the greeting, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Mary had no illusions about herself. She was, what, maybe about 16 years of age, something like that, give or take a few years. Uh, she came from a, an insignificant city, and all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord stands in front of her and says, hey, you are favored by God. She was, she's perplexed by that. What do you mean? What sense? Verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. She's a virgin, but she is going to conceive, and she is going to have a son, and she will call him Jesus. And he, will be great, and he will be great, not great before the Lord, but great. John the Baptist is described as great before the Lord. Jesus is described in an absolute sense as simply great, language that the Old Testament uses of God himself. The one who's coming to you is actually even greater than John the Baptist. That's the idea. The one coming will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the one coming is the descendant of David. This is the king that Israel, and indeed the world, the world knew it, is waiting for. All of the blessings of God to Israel and to the world are going to come through this king from the line of David. Uh, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He will reign forever and ever. 
The governments of this world are shadows that are passing away. Uh, Human authorities are passing away. Human rulers are passing away. But there's a king coming whose rule will never end. He's the descendant of David, and he's coming to bring to the people of God the blessings of God. This is in fulfillment of God's prior promise to David. Uh, About a thousand years before the coming of Jesus into the world, God makes a promise to perhaps Israel's most significant king, King David, the king after God's own heart. He says to David, 2 Samuel 7, 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In other words, there will be one of your descendants on the throne for all time. The prophet Isaiah, writing a few centuries later, uh, expands this promise in this way, and he says in Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Think about that. No end of peace. Uh, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. God's king is coming. The ultimate king is coming. God's blessings are coming with the king. And the angel says, that king is Jesus. You, Mary, are going to give birth to the Messiah, the long-awaited king. We need to understand that the rule of Christ comes into the world in stages, two stages. This reign that the angel talks about. Stage one is inaugurated with his first coming. When he comes into this world as both God and man, he inaugurates God's reign in the world. Uh, He lives a life of perfect obedience and submission to the Father, the only human being to have ever perfectly obeyed the commands of God. Uh, He is the king who comes into the world to fight the enemies of his people, to fight against sin and Satan and death. And at the cross... Jesus Christ defeats the enemies of his people. He endures in the place of his people the judgment of God. And when he had paid the price of our salvation in full, God raised him from the dead. And that resurrection bears witness to the fact that the guilt and shame of sin has been taken away from God's people who believe in him. The power of Satan and sin over the people of God has been broken. He is the triumphant king who enters into the very presence of God and reigns over all the nations, even in the present. His rule over the nations is now inaugurated. It's here. Those of us who bow to the king and trust in him are already tasting something of the joy and the peace of life under his reign. Those who know Jesus are already experiencing something of the peace of conscience and the joy that there is in following Jesus. We're experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit who renews our lives. So his rule is inaugurated, it's here, and if you're believing in him, you are under his kingly authority. But his rule is not here yet in all of its fullness. The day is coming when he he will return, the second coming. And on that day, uh, all things that presently contest the reign of Jesus will be conquered, and all things will bow the knee to Jesus, and all will be well, and all manner of thing will be well. There will peace, be peace forever and ever, uh, and he will reign forever and ever. There will be no end to his reign. We need to understand, as we look at that statement in verse 33, that says, 
he will reign for, forever over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there, there will be no end. That's not just a statement about Jesus and his kingdom. That's a statement about our future. If we are subject to the king, that's us. That's the kingdom that we will be inheriting. Uh, we will live under his life-giving, peace-giving reign forever and ever. Have you ever, have you ever read uh, a really good book such that when you get to the end, you're a little bit sad because you want it to go on and on? Well, Jesus' kingdom is something like that. It's wonderful, like a good book, but unlike a, a book, it goes on forever and ever. Each chapter is better than the last. And if Jesus is your savior, if he's your king, that is your future. Every day will be better than the one before in his kingdom. It will truly be said of every single one of his children that they lived happily ever after. That language is perfectly appropriate to describe your, your future if you belong to Jesus. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then you should count yourself blessed. You should, you should look at yourself and say, I, I've won at the lottery of life, if I can put it that way. Things have gone well with me. A lot of times when we assess our lives, what do we do? We look at the present, and we look at all the challenges and difficulties of the present, and we conclude that we are not very fortunate at all. Look at all those people who aren't even following Jesus. Look how smoothly their life goes. They seem to go from strength to strength, and here we are trying to follow Jesus, and it seems like there's one affliction after another sometimes but grim perspective. Part of the problem when we start thinking like that is that we're focused just narrowly on the present, uh, the challenges of the present. Verse 33 encourages us to take a longer view. If that's our future, then when we assess our lives, we need to consider our future, not just this chapter that we happen to be in right now, but where is the story heading? What's the final outcome of the story? The final outcome is happiness in the kingdom of Jesus forever. When you look at that and recognize that that's the ultimate truth about your life, even in the midst of present challenges, you can count yourself blessed. This is exactly, by the way, how the psalmist in Psalm 73 reasons. The psalmist looks around and he sees the wicked prospering. They eat well, their eyes bulge out through fatness, they don't have any pangs until death, and all the while he's seeking to be faithful to the Lord and he's experiencing one affliction after another. All in vain I've kept my hands clean, he says. Right? He feels bitter and resentful. Because what? He's looking just at the present. But what happens when he starts looking at the end? There's a turning point in the middle of that psalm. Then I discerned their ends. I saw where, the trajectory of their life and the trajectory of my life. And he realizes, man, I've been a fool. I've acted like a, a brutish animal. Uh, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. God has truly blessed me. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my heart, my portion forever. That's the concluding note of the psalm. Truly I am blessed. Well, how does he come to that conclusion? It's by looking beyond his present affliction to the future. And he sees what God has prepared for him. And he says, in light of that, I'm truly blessed. So that's the angel's announcement. Mary, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. Now, this poses a problem that Mary mentions and identifies in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Mary understood the facts of life. Uh, how was she going to conceive a son if she was a virgin? 
Okay? She's not responding in unbelief like Zechariah. She's simply saying this is unheard of, a virgin giving. There's precedent for barren women of you know, miraculously giving birth to children, but a virgin? How is this going to work? The angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Uh, that word that's translated overshadow is used in the Old Testament to refer to the cloud that comes down when the tabernacle or slash temple of God is built. Uh, it's a picture of God's glory and presence in the midst of his people. The cloud overshadows the tabernacle. And in a similar way, the glory and power of God will overshadow Mary. And she will experience a miraculous conception. This is all mysterious. We're not told how. We're just told that God's power can bring it about. And then uh, by way of encouraging her faith, the angel says, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also conceived a son. So you know Elizabeth, whom everyone thought was barren and there's no hope for her? She's going to have a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And the reason is nothing will be impossible with God. Understand that however improbable this may seem, God has no limits. Nothing can stop him from working. Nothing will be impossible with God. So how does Mary respond to that announcement. Consider first what this message would have meant for Mary. She's a young woman of, again, about 16. She has been engaged to Joseph. And by the way, engagements were a big deal in the ancient world, like a bigger deal than they are now. Uh, they were close, like when you got engaged, you essentially took your marital vows. You committed to each other. And the only way to get out of an engagement was through uh, a divorce. And so there could be, you know, all kinds of personal repercussions, even financial repercussions. Couldn't just give the ring back to the guy and say, here, it's done. It's a big deal. Uh, so she, being engaged to Joseph, presumably would have wondered, like, what will this mean in terms of my relationship with Joseph? If I'm with child and seen to be with child, what will that mean in terms of my engagement to Joseph? What will happen to my reputation in my community? Uh, presumably Mary had a certain picture at this point of how her life was going to go. And God's the revelation of God's purpose for her unsettles everything. The future now is just a big question mark. Everything is unsettled. It's a high privilege God has given me, but what will this mean practically in terms of everything that's going on? How would you have responded to that situation when God's purpose completely unsettles everything you thought was going to happen about your life? Well, here's how Mary responds, verse 38. And behold... Uh, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Her response, God, I am your servant. Literally, the word translated uh, servant is female slave. God, I am your, your slave. I'm, I give myself fully and with abandon to your will. What matters is not what my plans were or what I want. If this is your high calling on my life, then I embrace it with both hands. Come what may. And implicit in that response is the belief that what, God's, what God wants for me is better than what I would have chosen for myself. God's ways are higher and better than mine. And if that's God's will, then we yield to it. That's what faith looks like when God throws off our plans. And he inevitably will because he is Lord and we are not, even of our lives. Uh, how do you characteristically respond when God's purpose for you interrupts the purpose that you have for yourself? How do you characteristically respond when his plans get in the way of your plans? When he brings unexpected circumstances about or perhaps even just hard circumstances about? 
To respond in unbelief is to respond with frustration, self-pity, anger, joylessness. People who don't respond like Mary, believers who don't respond like Mary, uh, are often you know, outwardly yield because they have no choice about submitting to God in terms of their external circumstances. Those are inevitable. But inwardly, they harbor this smoldering resentment. They don't want to yield. God has done something that they don't like, they don't want. And inwardly, they're continuing to resist, and the result is misery, unhappiness, frustration, joylessness. Joy and peace come on the other side of yielding from the heart to God's purposes. When we look to God and say with Calvin, Lord, I offer my heart promptly and sincerely. When we say, God, this is not necessarily what I would have chosen, or this is unexpected, but I believe your ways are best, and I'm going to submit to what you have brought about. On the other side of that submission, of that yielding to God's purpose, we discover joy and contentment. Have you experienced that in your walk with Jesus? Maybe he's brought something about that you didn't expect or want, and initially you kick against it, and you're frustrated, and you're chafing at it, and you're trying to change it, and do everything in your power to make it go away, but it doesn't go away. And eventually you come to your senses, and you say, Lord, if this is your will for me, if this is your plan for me, then I accept it, and I submit to it from the heart. I embrace your will. What happens on the other side of that self-yielding and self-renunciation? A deeper joy and a deeper peace often. So this is what the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of the king into the world, calls us to. He is king. Uh, we should trust in him as our savior who defeats our enemies and brings us to God. But he's also Lord of our lives. And the appropriate response to his kingship is to say what Mary said. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word and absolutely every sphere and facet of my life. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess that you are our king, that you are our ruler. We confess also that life under your reign is good and joyful and life-giving. Uh, we ask that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to yield more and more of ourselves to your good and holy purposes. Uh, let us be like Mary in not contending with you uh, and not contending against your plan for us, but let us with joyful hearts submit to all that you have for us, trusting that your wisdom is higher than ours and your ways are greater than our ways. Amen.